Welcome to my Parsha Shir. Today we're going to look at uh, Parshas Miketz. Thank you so much to Jerry and Jean Friedman for sponsoring today's Parsha Shir in memory of Jerry's mother, Margaret Friedman, Miriam Margarita Bas Mendel, Aleha Asholem, whose yard site is on the 7th of Teves. May we all be zoicher to see Trias Hamesim. Today we will investigate the enigmatic dreams of Pharaoh that appear at the beginning of the Parsha, dreams which set the stage for Joseph's meteoric rise to power in Egypt. These dreams, while they may seem simple, actually hold profound spiritual and prophetic significance. And that's what I'd like to look at uh, uh, today in these dreams. I'd like to understand that together with you. It all began one restless night in ancient Egypt. The ruler of ancient Egypt was Pharaoh, and that night he was disturbed by two puzzling dreams. The first dream featured seven healthy, robust cows emerging from the Nile River. These seven cows were then set upon and devoured by seven lean, gaunt cows. Mysteriously, the thin cows remained thin. Now, isn't that something? A foodie's dream, eat all you want and never gain weight. The second dream had a similar structure. Seven plump and healthy ears of wheat were swallowed by seven thin, weedy-looking wheat bunches. These dreams, vivid and disturbing, left Pharaoh deeply troubled and he desperately wanted them to be interpreted. Before probing the interpretations, let's take a closer look at the Pesukim describing the dreams as they happened. In Posig Dalad, after the first dream, the Torah simply states, Vayikatz pare, and Pharaoh awoke. It seems like a straightforward statement, but when we move on to Posig Zion, after the second dream, the Torah adds two more words to that phrase, Vayikatz pare, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. I'm going to use this subtle difference in the text to delve into a hidden meaning in the Psukim that will reveal a tremendous amount about this intriguing story. Rashi, always insightful, comments on the phrase by saying that what it means is that the dream was now complete, in other words, fully formed, and that now it required interpretation. The Mepharshe Rashi, the commentaries on Rashi, ponder several crucial questions regarding Rashi's explanation. Firstly, what exactly does Rashi mean by a complete dream? Why was it only complete now? Secondly, what was bothering Rashi about this phrase that he felt the need to comment on it and to explain it? And thirdly, what deeper understanding is Rashi trying to convey to us via his explanation? What do we know now after he explains it that we didn't know before? In answering these questions, we are not just engaging in a dry textual analysis. We are uncovering layers of meaning that the Torah wove into these narratives. The answers to these questions will not only lead us to a deeper understanding of Pharaoh's dreams, but also to a deeper understanding regarding the role of prophecy and divine intervention in our history. One commentary on Rashi suggests, intriguingly, that the absence of the Hinei and behold it was a dream, 
in the first Posuk, Posuk Dalad, implies that Pharaoh's waking up was, in fact, part of his dream. This means that the entire narrative, including what seemed like waking up after the first dream, was actually one long, continuous dream. And that is what Rashi means. Consider this. Had Pharaoh truly woken up after the first dream about the cows, the anxiety and the need for an interpretation would have surely kept him awake. This anxiety would then have prevented him from having the second dream about the sheaves, which means that this second dream was vital if there was going to be a full and proper interpretation of the first dream or both dreams. The repetition of the theme in both dreams underscored the urgency and importance of the message. That's why Pharaoh did not wake up properly after the first dream. Rather, he only dreamt that he woke up. We can now understand Rashi's comment. When the Torah first says, Vayikatz paroi, and Pharaoh awoke, in the context of the first dream, it is describing a dream moment, not a waking moment. That's why only after the second dream about the sheaves is over, does Pharaoh realize Vehine Chaloim, and behold, it was a dream, because that's when he woke up. Rashi is cleverly guiding us to understand that when the dream about the cows was over, the dream was not yet done. This interpretation reshapes our understanding of Pharaoh's dreams. It is a real eureka moment. The two dreams are not two separate, unconnected visions. Rather, they are one cohesive, uninterrupted dream. And here's the kicker. This revelation sets the stage for the fact that any interpretation can only be done by someone who understands the nature of these dreams as a single entity, not two separate entities. And only such a person would be able to provide the true interpretation. In any event, and I think you can see where I'm going with this, Pharaoh was deeply troubled by his dream and he immediately sought an interpretation. And he had a secret card up his sleeve to determine if the interpretation was correct. He realized that only someone who understood that what he had experienced that night was one long dream, not two separate dreams, would be able to provide the correct interpretation. This understanding was going to be crucial for anyone attempting to unravel the mysteries of his dream with two parts. With that in mind, let's look at Posuk Ches. Pharaoh turns to his soothsayers, magicians and wise men, and he tells them about his dream. And guess what? The Torah tells us, And there was no interpreter for them, for Pharaoh. It's incredible. It says, Oisom, them, in the plural, about the dreams. The soothsayers and wise men could not interpret the dreams correctly. Do you know why? because they saw them as dreams in the plural, oisam, two separate dreams. They did not see them as a single unified narrative in two parts. And when you contrast this with what happened when Joseph entered the scene, you can see the difference immediately. In Pozikhov Aleph, Pharaoh includes the detail of waking up as part of the dream narrative. However, in verse Chofdalud, there's no mention of waking up. This is because he only recalled the content of the dream 
to Joseph, not the sensation of waking up at the end, which was not part of the dream. This subtle detail was a clever way of testing the interpreter, and Joseph, with his Ruach HaKodesh, grasped this fact immediately, which is why when Joseph responds in Posuk he doesn't talk about two dreams. Instead, he says, Chaloim paroi echod hu. Pharaoh's dream is one. Do you understand what's going on? Joseph wasn't saying that the interpretations of two dreams were aligned. He was affirming to Pharaoh that he understood Pharaoh's experience as having been one long continuous dream with two parts. This was a pivotal moment as it showcased Joseph's prophetic understanding and spiritual insight, which is why Pharaoh was so impressed with him. Once you hear that, it all makes sense. And of course, Joseph's interpretation differed fundamentally from the interpretation of the soothsayers and the wise men. While they had understood Pharaoh's experience as having been two separate dreams, Joseph saw one dream. Let's look more deeply, more closely at Posuk Zion and examine Rashi's commentary. It was in the morning, and Pharaoh's spirit was troubled, and so he sent for all the soothsayers of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Rashi's commentary on this posuk, taken from Chazal, is really, really important. He says, There were interpreters, says Rashi, but Pharaoh didn't like what they were saying. Their ideas about the dreams did not enter his ears, and he had no satisfaction in their interpretations. Continues Rashi, The wise men said, You will give birth to seven daughters and then you will bury seven daughters. Rashi is emphasizing a key point. The wise men and the soothsayers, magicians, whatever they were, offered a bunch of interpretations, but none of these interpretations resonated with Pharaoh. They suggested that he would have and then bury seven daughters, but this analysis did not align with Pharaoh's understanding of the dreams and their significance. As far as he was concerned, their interpretations were superficial and they, they had entirely missed the true essence of what he had dreamt. But why didn't Pharaoh like what he heard? I think that Pharaoh's dissatisfaction with these interpretations wasn't just about the accuracy of the predictions, it actually reflected a deeper quest for truth. Pharaoh was seeking an interpreter who could delve beneath the surface and reveal the profound underlying message of his dreams. The interpreters spoke of daughters being born and dying, which seemed irrelevant to him as the ruler of ancient Egypt. Of course, if that happened, it would be bad for him, but surely the dreams had a broader meaning than his own personal life. By the way, this raises a crucial question. Why does the Torah refer, refer to these advisors as wise men 
in Posuk Ches, if they were so useless in this situation. In retrospect, how wise could they have been if they couldn't work these dreams out? Surely even a layperson could have interpreted the dreams as symbols of abundance and famine. How did these so-called wise men miss such an apparent interpretation? Good question, right? Maharal Diskin offers a brilliant answer to this conundrum. He says that these men were in fact, they really were Chachomim. They were wise and they were capable of foreseeing the future. They saw the seven years of plenty very clearly. However, they did not foresee the subsequent seven years of famine. It was this limitation in their vision that led them to propose an alternative interpretation, which leads directly to the next question. Why couldn't these wise men foresee the second set of seven years, the seven years of famine? If they had the gift of foresight, shouldn't they have been seen both the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine? For the answer, you need to turn to chapter 47, Posigutes, where the Egyptians come to Yosef and they say, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. Rashi raises a question. Why would they talk about planting seeds during a famine? Rashi points out an anomaly. The Egyptians talked about planting seeds despite Joseph's prediction of continued famine, which Rashi explains because when Jacob came to Egypt, his presence brought about a blessing and the famine ended. It is this detail in Rashi's commentary that sheds light on the limitations of the Egyptian wise men's foresight. They could foresee the seven years of plenty, but not the seven years of famine because it was interrupted by the arrival of Jacob. So it was only two years and therefore they couldn't understand the seven lean cows and the seven thin ears of wheat, which was why they tried to find another explanation. But this understanding presents us with a new problem. When Joseph interpreted the dreams, he spoke about seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. If we take Maharil Diskin's interpretation into account, it would appear that Joseph's interpretation was mistaken, and the wise men's interpretation, though it was dismissed, was more accurate. Did Joseph misinterpret the dream? Were the Khatumim, the Egyptian magicians, actually right in their understanding and Joseph was wrong? The implications of this contradiction are profound. It challenges our understanding of Joseph's role as a Baal Ruach HaKodesh and as an interpreter of dreams. If Joseph was mistaken, what does that say about his divine insight and the role he played in Egypt's history? This apparent discrepancy throws a spanner into the works of our whole understanding of prophecy, divine will, and the possibility of human interpretation and God-inspired foresight. Is prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh absolute, or are they subject to change based on human actions and divine intervention? 
This dilemma is not just about Joseph and the wise men, it reflects a broader theme in Jewish thought about the dynamic nature of prophecy and fate. Let's turn to the Ramban. His commentary provides a fascinating angle on this issue. The Ramban writes, They came to him in the second year of the famine, and even though Joseph had said that there would be there'd still be five years without ploughing and harvesting, once Jacob came to Egypt, a blessing came with him, and they began to sow, and the famine ceased. It says in Breshish Rabba that uh, Rabbi Yossi Barbechanina said, The famine lasted two years. When Jacob of uh, Yaakov of Vinu descended to Egypt, the famine ceased. When did it come back? In the days of Yecheskel. And if so, were Joseph's words, as he interpreted them, not fulfilled? Surely this raises doubt about his abilities and his insight. This is all Ramban. Ramban goes on and says, perhaps it's because the famine was still ongoing in the land of Canaan, in Eretz Canaan, just as Joseph said it would be. But in Egypt, when Jacob came to see Pharaoh and all of Egypt, God blessed them and the Nile River rose and the land flourished. If so, was the dream that Pharaoh had that night not true because there was no famine in Egypt? The Tosefta in Soita quotes Rabbi Yossi, who says that once Yaakov Avinu died, the famine returned to its original state. And in Sifri it says about the Posuk that Yaakov blessed Pharaoh. With what did he bless him? That the famine should stop after the second year. Nevertheless, the remaining five years were completed, but that was after Yaakov Avinu died. Ramban's interpretation offers us a resolution to the contradiction. He suggests that the famine did last seven years in Eretz Canaan, as Joseph predicted, but in Egypt the presence of Jacob, who was a tzaddik, brought a temporary respite from the famine. This divine intervention altered the course of events, but it did not contradict the truth of Joseph's interpretation. It shows the dynamic nature of divine prophecy and how it can interact with the righteousness, the tzitkus of individuals. This interpretation from Ramban shows us just how complex prophecy is and can be. It's not merely about predicting the future. It's about understanding how divine will and human actions interconnect. Joseph's interpretation was correct, but it was subject to the influence of the divine blessing brought by Yaakov Avinu. Ramban's first answer suggests a geographical distinction in the impact of the famine. While the famine continued in Canaan, Egypt experienced relief as a testament to the greatness of Yaakov Avinu. This divine intervention showcasing Jacob's righteousness was meant for the Egyptians to witness. It underscores the idea that divine acts can serve as demonstrations of faith and righteousness to the wider world. Ramban's second answer presents a different perspective. The famine did last seven years, but it was not continuous. Initially, there were two years of famine, which were then followed by a respite due to Yaakov's presence. After Yaakov's death, the famine returned for the remaining five years. This interpretation suggests a slightly more complex unfolding of events, but it shows that Joseph's interpretation was correct. According to Ramban's first answer, the, Egyptians, the Egyptian wise men's foresight 
was limited to Egypt's immediate future. Their concern did not extend beyond their national borders, contrasting with Joseph's universal perspective. Joseph, in his interpretation, saw the bigger global picture, understanding the relationship of events across different regions. In the second answer, Ramban explains that the Khartoumim, the magicians, expected a continuous seven-year period of famine following the seven years of plenty. They could not envisage the intermittent nature of the famine as revealed by Joseph. Maharil Diskin adds that these wise men who operated with Koyachatuma, powers of impurity, evil, were limited to seeing only a singular, unaltered future. They were unable to perceive multiple outcomes or variations in the divine decree. Contrastingly, Joseph's interpretation, inspired by God, as mentioned in the Pasuk, was not restricted to a single outcome. His connection with the divine allowed him to access every possible variation of the future. Joseph's ability to see beyond the immediate and to understand the multiplicity of divine plans highlights the profound nature of his prophetic insight. On Seder night in the Haggadah we say about God, Vayar Esonyenu, he saw our suffering. This suffering is further explained as precious derecheretz, a separation from normal life. Specifically, it refers to the tragic reality that men and women could not live together as husband and wife due to the harsh slavery conditions in Egypt. The Haggadah provides a source text for this idea from Shmois chapter 2, Posuk Kofei, which reads, Vayarlikim es b'nei Yisrael, vayeda elokim. And God saw the Jewish people and God knew. This citation prompts the question, how can this possibly prove that husbands and wives could not be intimate? Moreover, if Elohim, God, is the subject, why is the word Elohim repeated again at the end of the Pasuk? Logically, it should just conclude with the word Vayeda, and he knew. We would know who knew, because Elohim was already mentioned. The key lies in understanding the depth of knowledge indicated by Vayeda Elohim, and God knew. It wasn't just any knowledge. This knowledge represents a divine awareness of what could have been. God's knowledge encompassed the potential lives of children who were never born because of the suffering of the Jews. The repetition of Elohim at the end of the verse emphasizes the unique nature of this knowledge, one that only God could possess. This understanding offers an additional insight into the nature of divine compassion and awareness. God was acutely aware not just of the physical suffering of the Jews, but also the emotional and spiritual anguish resulting from the destruction of family life and the loss of potential future generations. It underscores the depth of God's connection with his people, not just in their tangible suffering, but in the intangible losses they endured. Bringing this back to Joseph's story, we see a parallel in the theme of divine awareness and intervention. Just as God was aware of the Israelites' suffering in Egypt, he was also intricately involved in Joseph's life, guiding the events that would eventually lead to the salvation of his family 
and the fulfillment of his divine plan. And here's one last idea for you to consider. In Pasuk Yudala, the Torah describes a moment of rapid transition in Joseph's life. It's actually a really remarkable posuk. Pharaoh sent for and called Joseph, and they rushed him out of the pit. He shaved, he changed his clothes, and he went to Pharaoh. Why was there such a rush in bringing Joseph from the pit to Pharaoh? Sforno offers a beautiful and deeply moving explanation. He says they rushed him from the pit as this is the way of all of God's salvations and redemptions. They happen in an instant, as it says, Ki for my salvation is near to arrive. And God says he will do the same in the future, as it says in Malachi, and suddenly he will come to his temple. Sforno is highlighting a fundamental aspect of divine salvation, its swiftness and suddenness. Just as Joseph was rapidly brought from the depths of the pit to stand before Pharaoh, so too does God act swiftly when he delivers his people. This parallels the exodus from Egypt when the Jews had to leave in such a rush, such a hurry, that their dough did not even have time to rise, which is why we eat matzah to this day. Sforno's commentary also has implications for our understanding of redemption and salvation in our own time. It reminds us that even in our darkest moments, like Joseph in the pit, redemption can be just around the corner and it can occur quicker than we might ever anticipate. As the Posset quoted by Sforna from Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger and he shall clear the way ahead of me. And God, who you seek, will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom delights you. He will come, says Hashem Tzavokos. Malachi's prophecy speaks of a sudden and unexpected divine visitation. The messenger who clears the way symbolizes the preparation for divine intervention. God's sudden arrival to his temple signifies a moment of revelation and redemption, a theme that echoes throughout our history from Joseph's sudden rise to power to the Israelites' rapid departure from Egypt. And this message from Malachi resonates strongly with us, especially right now in this challenging period of uncertainty. It serves as a powerful reminder that redemption, often long awaited and deeply yearned for, can arrive unexpectedly. The sudden arrival of the divine is a beacon of hope and shining light, letting us know that in our moments of despair, change is on the horizon and it is much closer than we might think. Let us carry with us and constantly share this message of hope and anticipation. Just as Joseph was swiftly lifted from the pit to stand before Pharaoh, and just as our ancestors were hurriedly led out of Egypt, we can also look forward to the swift and unexpected redemption in our own lives, right now, for us as individuals 
and for all the Jewish people, and in fact, for the whole world. In these toughest of times, let us hold on to the promise that God, whom we seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and let this be a source of comfort and strength, reminding us that the potential for deliverance and transformation is ever-present at all times, in every moment. May we all merit to see the fulfilment of these promises. Bimheira v'yamenu, amen v'amen. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.